Coming up next, let's just say it's a very stylish episode of The Booketing as we discuss the elements of style. That wasn't a good intro at all. It's fine. <laughs> Put on your tuxedo. <laughs> yeah. Putting on the Ritz, baby. Look at English, Nathan Armisen, your humble and obedient host, agent provocateur, as I like to say now, for some reason. No one really knows why. I thought about I thought of it in the mall, Brandon. I was in the walking mall. through the mall and I thought, you know, I'd kinda like to have a new title for myself. I tend to rotate titles for other people, but I've been a humble and obedient host, and I don't want to stop being that, but I'd like to say, you know, add something to the mix. Yeah. So I decided to be agent provocateur. Were you walking past a hot topic? <laughs> Saw that on like a hoodie or something. <laughs> you know, I don't specifically remember that, but I know how my brain works, and it's entirely possible that that is the secret to what happened. That would be funny. <laughs> or maybe there's even a, a a store called it. You know, I think, and I don't know this because I'm a weirdo. I just know it because I, when I was decided I was going to be agent provocateur, I typed agent provocateur into Google. And the first thing that actually came up, which people shouldn't do this, but the first thing that came up was a line of lingerie. So it's possible at the mall. Maybe I walked past the Victoria's Secret. Of course, I averted my eyes like a like a gentleman and a, a, a Christian and all that sort yep. of stuff. But uh, maybe in just a split second, I saw the agent provocateur line of lingerie. Who knows? Maybe. <laughs> We could theorize all day. So anyway, I'm I'm say I'm gonna say agent. I, I like to call myself agent provocateur. You know what agent provocateur means, Brandon? The provoking agent. <laughs> That's absolutely right. The provoking agent. That's kind of what I am in these podcasts. That you like I to do. stir the pot. Yeah, I'm the guy that stirs the pot. It's my job to get the discussion going, start arguments, start discussions, say things. I think agent provocateurs are usually a little bit more like jerky than I hope I am. But no, you're uh, not jerky. I'm not jerky? No, you're not. Okay, good. Uh, Yeah, you're the agent provocateur. Yes. Sometimes the judge provocateur. The judge provocateur, that's right. In the classic booking episode, Stone Cold, beloved classic episode, Ready Player One, which everyone liked, except for the people that didn't like it. (laughs) What do you think about all this, Jake? Oh, interesting. Yes, sir. That's a... Sound of cricket sound effect that just went in there. The fact is that Jake is, in fact, not here today, folks. I'm very sorry. He's attending to personal business. Uh, it's like uh, out that scene in Alice in Wonderland. We're floating in tears now. Yep, we're floating in tears. Yeah, it's like that scene exactly. Yep. The only people that are left are the walrus and the carpenter. Yep. In fact, I'll let you decide, listener, which one is which. Well, I think it's obvious. I'm the one who's weeping like anything <laughs> to see such quantities of Stan. Yeah, folks, Jake's not here right now, but welcome to the booking. We are going to carry on today in, in lieu of Jake because we, we the show must go on, right, Brandon? That's right. So what we thought we'd do is we're not going to talk about, like last week we talked about Charlotte's Web. Brandon gave us some wonderful context on Mr. E.B. White, on Charlotte's Web, on all that good stuff. And we are going to come back to that, I hope, next week. Uh, Jake's not in any trouble, by the way. He's doing fine. He's healthy. He's fit as a fiddle. He loves us. He wishes he could be the, here. He will be here, generally speaking. This is just a very rare 
episode where the show had to carry on, but Jake, unfortunately, is otherwise occupied with with some personal business, but everything's going well for him, so I don't want anybody to worry about Jake. So here's the thing. Jake really wanted to be here to talk about Charlotte's Web, so we're not going to talk about Charlotte's Web. We had discussed maybe talking about Elements of Style. I looked back over Elements of Style, and it's wonderful. If people Mm -hmm. don't know what it is, it's a slender little volume by William Strunk Jr. and E.B. White with some elementary principles of composition and some pet peeves and some things, just some good, solid advice on how to be a good writer, things that seem so simple as to almost be stupid, but... If you actually did them, I don't know how to say it. It's like... If you would just think of these things, it's like the best equivalent is if you're a musician and you have scales that you have to learn or you have to do your um, arpeggios and all that stuff. It's because your fingers need to learn where to land. I was a musician for a little while and I took classes with a professor and he told me I had to do all these exercises. So he even had some weird exercises that I thought were pointless. But he said the point was that eventually you just wanted it to become second nature where your hands would go. You wanted to be able to find middle C without looking, and then you wanted to be able to go all the way up here and hit this high A without looking. Yes. So that eventually you could play these, you know, pieces with just your head up in the air and not even looking at the keys. I have a point. The point being, eventually you want these rules and stuff to just be second nature so that you're making the right choices when you're writing a sentence. Something that was really fun reading some of this stuff about E.B. White was to see how much he would edit. Yes. And so like when he would be writing Charlotte's Web, you could see sentences that he would go back over and over again and then finally he would take his blue editor's pen he would just like write out beside it needs fixing and which would tell him obviously to go back and fix it later yeah and he would apply these rules to it because something was wrong and he would need to figure out what's wrong here how can i make this better how can i make it have more snap crackle and pop Mm. (laughs) yep that's what strunk and white is that's what strunk and white is and so back when i taught undergrads if ever i had a student i thought would have promise or had any promise whatsoever. But you get a student who either has promise that they're a hard worker. I'd pick up a book, this book, it's like a dollar at half price books. And I would always keep a few on me. And if they had promise, I would give this book to them. Sure. It was my gift to them to Mm -hmm. show them that I appreciated the fact that they wanted to learn how to write. Yeah. I said, if you really want to learn how to write, read this book and memorize it. And once you've memorized it, then you can start learning how to write. These are really, it's not a bad analogy. This is like learning your skills in music. Right. But it's, but if that makes people think that it's dusty or dry or boring or, or without adventure, then they're crazy. No. Because yeah. actually, I mean, okay, here's another analogy. What, what, what do you tell a, a, a young man? Well, you tell him to keep his way pure. You tell him to take responsibility. Those are really simple for, you know, to be a man. That's what you, that's what you do. Those, that's really, those are some, some really simple things to tell somebody. But if you actually did them, if you actually went through your life just applying the principle of, in everything I do, I must be pure. In everything I do, I must take responsibility. It would change your world. It would, it would change every conversation. It would change the way that you approach. And these, these principles are the same. Rule number 16, use definite, specific, concrete language. That's one that I just happened to open up to. That might sound like not much, but if you actually do this in your writing, I mean, it's as simple as saying, well, here, what's his example? He says, he showed satisfaction as he took possession of his well-earned reward. He contrasts that with the better version, which is, he grinned as he pocketed the coin. Now, if you begin to think of all your writing, how can I give color and verve and life to this writing by thinking of concrete specifics? He picked up the coin instead of he greedily possessed. 
if you if you start to do that, I don't even know how to talk about it. It's mind-blowingly, life-changingly yep. important. Um, yeah, and and that's not to say, like you were saying, that this is dusty and boring because this is actually hard work. Yeah. If you th- it's always easier to be lazy and abstract, <laughs> even though people think that it sounds more intelligent. So you read those two sentences. Mm-hmm. Can you read them again? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which one sounds smarter? He showed satisfaction as he took possession of his well-earned reward. Yep. And then the other one. He grinned as he pocketed the coin. Yep. See, the one sound the first one actually sounds more intelligent. And that's because Before yeah. you go on, Brandon, I'm just going to say what we're going to do today, folks, we're just going to use this book, The Elements of Style, which we love, which we read I read for pleasure actually. I love it that much. We're going to use it as a springboard to just talk about style in general, which is something we've never really done. What yeah. makes good style? What makes bad style? You know, we had some people kind of, oh, why is Brandon got to be so snobby about Ernest Klein and blah, blah, blah. Um, we had some of that. We've had, you know. Well, maybe it's because I'm a snob. Maybe it's because Brandon's, maybe it's Brandon adjusted his monocle and said, good day, sir, to the person that said that. But <laughs> I never. <laughs> I will. I never. <laughs> Balderdash. Um, but point is, we're going to talk about style today. And that's what Brandon is going to continue doing right now. So I'll read those sentences again. I'm yeah. sorry to interrupt you there. No, Just no, no, that's m- good. Make sure the train was on track and people knew where it was going. We're choo-chooing um, along. See, right there, I could have said, just wanted to make sure people knew the destination which we were striving to seek in our podcast. But instead, I applied Rule 16, used definite, specific, concrete language, and I said the train was on track and people knew where it was going. Yeah. And that was more interesting and more colorful than it would have been. Yeah, and then I, I could just, have said we're moving along, it, but instead I said choo choo and along. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Strunk, <laughs> you're drunk. I'm we're, white. We're brilliant. <laughs> uh, we're regular William Shakespeare and uh, Christopher Marlowe. Yep, you... I'm going to stab you. <laughs> so, so I'm Marlowe. Oh, I guess <laughs> I'll be Marlowe. Okay, so let me give you those sentences again, Brandon. And Shakespeare we'll... stab Marlowe. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> well, Shakespeare, as we know, was really Elizabeth Bathory. Yeah, we um, are rewriting history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. He showed satisfaction as he took possession of his well-earned reward. That's dumb, stupid sentence number one. And then that is contrasted with the better example. He grinned as he pocketed the coin. But my point was, which if you were to just read both sentences and you were to ask someone, which sounds more intelligent? I think a lot of people would think, well, the one that uses the $20 words. He showed satisfaction as he took possession of his well-earned reward. Yeah, the only way you could make it better is as he displayed satisfaction. Yes. As he what? Took possession. Yeah, as he took possession of his well-earned reward. That sounds stuffy, so therefore it sounds important. And academic writing does a lot of that sort of thing today. What people typically try to teach students to do in high school is this thesis five-paragraph essay. Especially when you get to college, students think that if you stuff it full of words that sound big, words that are abstract instead of concrete, that that makes you... Actually, I think they think it makes them say something important. Right, I know I hid behind it a lot when I would be lazy. It's a lot harder to actually hide good thinking when you're trying to be concrete. Because when you're specific, you actually have to make an argument. Right. Right. Or when you're specific, you actually have to talk about something real here, you know. And you have to describe it. You have to actually describe something. And that is, as we've pointed out many times, what sets apart the really great author is that author who has an eye for that one thing, like the grin and the pocketing the coin. They have that perfect eye for it, and they can see it, and they call that thing out as opposed to this other thing, Mm -hmm. right? Or they call that thing out instead of being lazy and talking about the fact that he was just satisfied as he took possession of his well-earned reward. Right. So the point being there, a lot of times what we think is smart-sounding is actually lazy. 
a lot of what we're actually discussing, this hadn't occurred to me until just now, but you keep using the word lazy. And I think we're really just discussing the difference between hard work and laziness. A lazy writer is one who just grabs the nearest word that pops into his brain. He grabs it and he uses it. He just grabs cliches. That's why, that's one of the reasons why when Brandon's snobbily adjusting his monocle and looking down his nose at Ernest Klein, it's because it's clear that Ernest Klein didn't actually put a lot of thought into his prose. He just he just wrote what had occurred to him to write, and that was it. I mean, it's just it's 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 riddled with cliches. That's a little bit of uh, self-deprecating humor there, because saying riddled with cliches is in fact a cliche. It's um, riddled with a cliche. Yeah, riddled with cliche is a phrase that was riddled with one cliche. It's just clear. I don't even know how to quantify. This is why you start to feel like a snob. And maybe even sound like a snob when you talk about these things, because when you try to parse it and you try to quantify it for people, it can be tricky. I think, though, that this this angle is always one that works a little better for me when I do try to point out that it's a matter of laziness versus hard work. To, to become who he was, E.B. White put a lot of work into these essays. Right. Like I said, you can go and you can look at Charlotte's Web. There are manuscripts. You can actually look and see all the work that went into each sentence. Apparently, there are manuscripts, and man... I would die a happy man to see these. You can probably guess. Tolstoy's manuscripts exist. And he has red lines and crosses through all his, and he was just fighting to find that perfect expression. That's encouraging for anyone who wants to learn how to write. Kazuo Shiguro, when we talked about him, he he is a craftsman when it comes to his writing. Whenever I talk about Shakespeare, I always like to stress the fact that he was a craftsman, right? And he didn't really see genius the way we see it. And I think it's true of a lot of the actual writers that are worth looking up to, that do they have the mindset of Shakespeare or do they have the mindset of, I don't know, Keats, right? I've never been a really huge Keats fan, but I like Coleridge and Coleridge worked hard. Sure. Right? Um, so it's a, it's a, I'm not getting off track. We're still on track no, here. I think we're on track, yeah. We're choo-chooing along. Yeah, we're choo-chooing along. Uh, the point is that, yeah, so hard work matters and you should respect the craft that goes into this, just like you. if I was arguing with a, a man, a grown man, who doesn't like reading stuff like this, I would say, well, do you like watching football or baseball or soccer? And they would say, yeah, you know. I'd be like, well, hard work goes into that, right? A lot of hours and hours of training. Well, in the same way, at least maybe you can admire the fact that hours and hours of training, hours and hours of precedent, hours and hours of, in years and years, all the way back, centuries and centuries of precedent for what makes good writing and rhetorical practice, and all this stuff, and the discipline of the craft right? behind just one essay that E.B. White would write, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so... Well, so, okay, let's defend ourselves, because there's probably someone thinking, well, those guys are still snobby towards... When you look at Ernest Klein, for example, we'll just use, we'll just make him our punching bag today. Sorry, Ernest Klein. We all enjoyed your book on some level. Brandon, on a microscopic level, but... I mean, I was entertained. He was entertained, yeah. I felt like Russell Crowe was walking around my heart saying, are you entertained? Right. And you said, eh, kind of, Russell. So we've established a lot of the difference between good writing and bad writing is the difference between laziness and, and diligence. How can you tell that someone like Ernest Klein, when you look at his writing, what, what is it that tips you off that this guy is lazy? One of the easiest ways to see it is cliche. And I would say that an overuse of references just for the sake of using them is usually pretty symptomatic of this. Right. Uh, well, I will say this about reference. I, I maybe it depends a little bit on what you mean by reference. I, I like specificity. I would prefer that someone say he drank a Coke to he drank a cola or he drank a soda. The fact that he's drinking a Coke, a Coca Cola, 
even though it's a brand name and that can be I don't know what it can just it can just place it in a certain pop culture era or whatever I think that can be helpful insofar as it lends specificity insofar yeah. as it tells you you know this this is the kind of guy that drinks a coke as opposed to a sprite that tells you something this is a guy that kind of somebody's drinking a Budweiser you know something about that character that if he's drinking a Sam Adams or a I'm sorry I don't know beer but if he's drinking a hipster beer that's a different story it's a different character so I think brands yeah, references things like that they can add concrete specificity they can be helpful yeah but that's not the same as and then just throwing in a reference to mm-hmm. to just throw in a reference yeah just for the sake of it or because that's what the whole point of your book is just to show that you know these things right but that's that's an aside that's more I think a symptom of his bigger issue which is he leans heavily on cliche and so I wish I could think of some of the examples. We don't have the book was, in front of us, but but it was it is all over his book. It's wow. just it's just these easy turns of phrases, like you said, riddled with. Riddled is probably a really as good an example as we're going to find. The winding road. The yeah. Uh, Harold Bloom famously wrote an essay where he made fun of Harry Potter for having a bunch of cliches, and he said that characters in Harry Potter are always stretching their legs. You know, they're good when they don't just go for a walk. They stretch their legs they stretch harry stretches his legs hermione stretched her legs that's an example of a cliche that miss rawling was relying on when she wrote that book and so yeah and so a cliche is just it's an easy catch-all phrase that quickly gives you an idea of an action or something and all the feelings and emotions around that action in a very generalized way it almost makes it devoid of meaning that's the problem with a cliche mm-hmm. and i don't really know how to explain it well um, um for example, because I was just very abstract. So let's try not to be abstract. Well, if you say that a body is riddled with bullets, for example, that's a phrase that we've seen in newspapers, we've read it in novels, we've heard it so many times that it's kind of just lost its meaning and it just floats right past you. It doesn't make you stop and say, oh, this person just got shot and bullets, a bunch of bullets pierced their flesh and it was awful. Yeah. It it just kind of uh, goes in one ear and out the other. And a good writer can use that sparingly. Sometimes maybe he doesn't want you to stop and pay attention to the fact that someone got shot. But generally speaking, he wants to create a bold, vivid image in your brain. And so if he can come up with a new way to describe someone having bullets thump into their flesh and them die like Sonny in The Godfather, that can bring it to life for you in a way that using a cliche. uh, Well, and this is where we again back into that question that came up in the trial. It's what's the point of literature? Is it something for you to be entertained by and therefore to be used by you? Or is it something that you're supposed to run up against and is supposed to give you something because you need something from it? Or there's something to get from it. Maybe not you even need something from it, but there's something to get from it. And there's a difference, right? If it's just there to be like the virtual reality world of Ready Player One, right? Just there for your entertainment. That's different than saying that it's there because... You need to enter this world because you're going to learn something from it. You're going to experience something from it that's worthwhile for you. And that's where cliche, it goes hand in hand with the first type. Because cliche, it it doesn't stop you in your tracks and make you think. It doesn't stop you in your tracks and make you consider what's being said. Instead, it's just there as a medium for you to be get your rush at and through, mm-hmm. right? So riddled with bullets, all you really want to think about is, is there's action going on. Bullets are flying. People are dying. Cool, yeah. Women are crying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the bad guys are lying. Superman's flying. Yeah. Bacon is frying. Yeah. Brandon is sighing. Brandon is sighing. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah. those are there because what you are reading that sort of story for is just to get the rush from that action. 
in the other type of story, and I'm actually turning back and forth, but the podcasters can't right, see this. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're want to experience a story, yeah, but there's something else going on, right? If you're being forced to look at the concrete detail, that's because there's something for you to get from the concrete detail, right? That's beyond just you and your uh, entertainment. Well, the thing is, even and if, this is that's that's where it gets tricky. It does get tricky there. And one of the things that I think makes it tricky, not the only thing, but one of the things that makes it tricky, the way that God set up the universe, he designed us to work. And even in our entertainments, if we have to work for them, they're generally more satisfying. I don't know what a good example of this. It's, it's, it's one of the things that well, I think people respond to about peak TV, the great TV shows, things like Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad is an example of a show that really makes you wait. And then it's got those big, explosive, violent payoffs but in between that, there's a lot of character moments. There's a lot of slow camera shots of just the sun coming up over the desert. There's a lot of atmosphere. There's a lot of what's going on in Walt's head. All that kind of stuff, which requires more mental energy on you as a television viewer, makes it so that when you get that big satisfying moment of revenge or of you know the big plot twist, whatever it is, you end up being fed by that a lot more because they've aroused your appetite and because they've made you work a little bit for it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's maybe a dumb example because it's just a silly TV show. But well, I mean, it's, a, it's an example people at least can relate to. But also, if anybody has ever done a hard day work, like actual physical labor, yeah, when you get to the end of the day, you're tired, but you actually kind of feel good as well. It's because you've worked hard. And so you feel like you've re- earned your reward of sitting on your porch with a beer or something with your wife, whatever. Yeah, you're right. There is something to hard work providing its own reward. Jane Austen is going to give you, just to use an example from, and I don't think she's primarily interested in writing satisfying romance stories, but insofar as her novels do function that way, she makes you work for it. You've got to understand these characters. You've got to enter into it. You've got to read a language that's a little bit more complicated and dense than what you're used to. And then when Darcy and Elizabeth finally end up together, you're really happy. And it means something that a Harlequin romance, for example, wouldn't mean because the path to get there is so much cheaper and easier. And the great adventure novels, the things, you know, that are better than Ready Player One are the novels that that make you do a little bit of work to get to the the hero defeating the villain. And Well, and also the things they're trying to give to you. So somebody could easily make the argument, well, like Tom Clancy, isn't he trying to give you a sense of American patriotism, right? I've heard people say that before. Really? Okay, yeah. I mean, sure, yeah, I guess he is. But I think the American patriotism is only there to self-serve the reader. It's not there to teach you anything. Maybe he thinks he is teaching you something, but even the lesson itself is cliched, right? It's like a meme that you get on Facebook, right? Uh, pass this on because this puppy needs prayer or right. something, right? <laughs> and I'm not in the f- school of thought that literature has to be didactic. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I do think that all communication in some sense is trying to communicate something, and which means all communication is to some extent didactic. Right. Maybe I, maybe I don't want to make that well, but I, I, Maybe another way of putting it is, uh, the, the, you know, the Bible says, what, whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Think on these things. Everything that we do is supposed to be done with an eye towards our edification and towards the edification exactly. of people around us. And it's not unfair to hold even our leisure activities, even our entertainments to some standard of, of feeding our souls, of teaching us something, of showing us something, of making us better, of improving us. Um, and sometimes a poem, all it will do is teach you to love a tree or something, to love the small details of the world. And it really is kind of that simple. But then it'll also, if you love the craft of writing and language, like you can learn to love style. 
And so this all kind of circles back to style. This was a long aside to make the point that the hard work is worth it. Hard work is part of appreciating good story and craft. And so part of that is style. And then good authors will always put hard work into their style. Sometimes they'll fail. But any serious writer is always going to try and think, how are the words that I'm using either furthering or preventing what I'm trying to get across? Right. So one of my favorite lines that I always tell students was one, it's from Yeats, poem Adam's Curse. He has this line where he says, to articulate sweet sounds together is to work harder than all these. And he's talking about the, the art of poetry. A line may take us hours, perhaps. And yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitchings and unstitchings have been not. And you can there, you can see it, the stitchings and unstitchings. He could have just said are articulations and speakings, right? But there you get back to the strunk and white. It's the concrete versus the abstract. But I think that a good starting place in thinking about style is realizing that a serious writer will often have spent hours behind a line that seems very natural to you. And I think that's definitely the case with E.B. White. I know it's the case after reading some biographies of him, that he would spend hours and hours behind one line, removing one word, putting it back in. Anyone who's tried to write poetry or anything like that, you realize, you know, you go back over and over, like just one word. What other Why is that word standing out to me? Why? How can I change it? And it's like chiseling, you know, you get the chisel out, you pull it out and you put some putty over it, you sand it down, but you can still see it. So you try to paint over it. It's very difficult to do. You, you look at Charlotte's Web, it seems so simple. That's very hard. And the only example you need to know how hard is just look at Harry Potter a book. I like those books just fine. But look at how bloated they are, how much verbiage there is to evoke some very simple emotions. And then think about how much more emotion and how much more truth E.B. White is able to communicate with a lot less language. It's because he's spent time crafting and chiseling in a way in a way that a lazier writer like J.K. Rowling, who again, not starting a war here, like Harry Potter, just fine, folks. So I don't want to get any tweets or emails or bricks thrown through my window. Like Harry Potter, enjoy those books. Enjoy the movies better because they're shorter. They have every good British actor ever uh, in them. And so they're kind of fun. But uh, you can just see how somebody like White has, has, has chiseled away everything that doesn't belong to just give you this beautiful picture of farm life, of a girl maturing into a woman, of all this stuff. And he just does it really simple, simply. That takes a tremendous amount of work. It takes a tremendous, it means he has to write way more stuff than he's actually ever, you're actually ever going to see. And then he cuts out the stuff and he thinks about, will this word work here? Will it not? I assume most of this is old news to most of our listeners that enjoy this kind of stuff. But I've had people ask me like, I've, I've literally had someone ask me what I think it was when we were doing Hemingway. They were like, why do you guys keep talking about the style? What is it about this that is really that much different than say Steinbeck? And the person said, maybe I just don't have an ear for it. Well, I think there is that partly could be true because some of this is developing an ear. If you look at the difference between a lot of good poetry versus bad poetry, there's a music inside the Shakespeare sonnet that is not inside the Taylor Swift lyric. Part of it is learning how to read poetry because there is a way to read it, right? But if you read it well, and a large part of it's just reading it, just read it naturally, and the nat- natural music of language will come out in it, there is, a, there is an element of just developing an ear for it. Reading stuff that's really good versus reading stuff that's not as good and listening and hearing the rhythms. And you go and you can get a book on poetic style. The one I recommend is Poetic Diction. It's by Robert Penn Warren. It's the old textbook they used to use at Yale. 
It's pretty expensive now. It's hard to find a copy, and somebody borrowed my copy, and I can't find it. Oh, no. Author of All the King's Horses, Mr. Yep. Robert Penn Warren. Or All the President's... No, I always get him confused. Yes, All the King's Horses. All, all the President's... All the President's Men is Robert Redford movie. Yeah. I think. You're right. Unless I'm confusing the two. But... <laughs> you got me confused now. Again, there's a whole aspect to rhythm and language and a whole world of rhetorical devices. And so it's, there's a lot that we could talk about. Like there's a lot of history to this. And so there's things like um, tropes and there are things like uh, metaphor and synecdoche and metonymy, all these things that go into looking at the way that you make comparisons with language, which would be like tropes, the way that you make metaphors with language or with images, which would be metaphor and metonymy and synecdoche, the way that you use rhythm with language, which would be meter and feet. So things like iams and anapests and troches, those things, the way that language flows and the way that words and consonants have, you know, consonants have stress within lines and stuff like that. There's a lot of thinking that goes into this. But again, it's like we were saying with Strunk and White at the beginning, you can learn these things, but eventually they have to become second nature because you can't, eventually you have to just write. Yeah. At a certain point, it just has to be, you just have to, you can learn the words all day. At a certain point, you have to know the music. It's a little bit like when you meet a non-native English speaker, and it's like they can have a 100% perfect vocabulary, but they'll just say weird things because they just don't understand the music of our language. They don't know, they don't know its rhythms. And so stuff just comes out wrong or the emphasis is on the wrong syllable, whatever it is. Yes, you have to, it has to be caught, not taught. Uh, Yeah. And so what do you say to somebody like that? Um, You can catch it by reading good. I mean, yeah, people will, I am of the school that some people will have more natural ability. Sorry. And I know that that is annoying because it sounds like what I'm saying is I have more natural ability than you, listener. That's not what I'm saying. There's probably lots of people that have more natural ability. What I'm just saying is that there are some people that are just better at this than other people. Some people that have a more more natural ear. William Shakespeare may well have been just a genius that stuff poured out of him. Not a lot of people out there like that, but the legend of James Joyce is that he wrote about seven words a day because none of it came easy to him. So there can be all kinds. What else do you say to somebody that like that? Yeah, so... Find people you trust and read what they tell you to read, but then also read what you know people have loved. If you want to develop an ear, then you got to take it upon yourself to develop your ear and just go out and read what you've been told is good. If it sounds bad to you, ask why, try to figure it out. Assume you might be wrong and that you need to be taught. Assume sometimes you might be right and that somebody's told you that you should be reading Sylvia Plath. Right. <laughs> While you're in the actually, process. Actually, there's some good Sylvia Plath. Yeah, but she, she wrote some cool, some, some, she, wrote, she wrote a couple sentences in her lifetime, that Sylvia Plath. While you're in the process of developing that ear, though, there are some very simple questions you can ask of any text. You can ask, what would they be? I mean, number one, we already alluded to it. You can just ask, is there a design behind this? Is there work behind this? Does it seem like this person cares? Or are they just grabbing the handiest words and the handiest cliches and stuffing them together? Or does it feel like they're trying? Now, people can try and fail, so that's not a be-all, end-all test. But that's a question to ask. Are they trying to follow some of these rules? Is there some restraint to their writing? Do you see any signs of restraint? Now, why would that be a good thing to look for? Because I always see it myself when I'm trying to write well. I usually am trying to be more restrained. Now, not so restrained that I'm cold, but restrained in the sense that I'm not just writing whatever I want to. I'm willing to cut things. I'm willing to cut back. Sometimes a writer will not be that way at all. Dickens Mm -hmm. is not restrained pretty much ever. (laughs) He may have just been kind of a genius, actually. 
He probably would have been even more of a genius if he'd had the ability to cut. There definitely wouldn't be the debate surrounding him yeah. that there is today. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, swear, I love him warts and all. I love his excesses, yeah. actually. But that's another podcast, I suppose. Coming up soon. Um, I'm excited for that one. Well, here's an example from Booking Past. Um, yeah, I'm excited for that, too. Ray Bradbury sometimes stinks, sometimes is awesome. But what you can tell and what's lovable about him is that this is a man that's in love with language, that's trying. There's design, there's thought, there's ideas behind everything he's doing. He's always swinging for the fences. Sometimes he could show more discipline, perhaps. But you're not reading a lazy man when you read Ray Bradbury. And I think that is, again, we get back to this question of laziness. If you read an author like Dickens, I don't get the sense that he's lazy. I get the sense that he just really loves what he's saying. Mm -hmm. And he's wanting to be creative with language. Right. He yeah. might be careless. That might be the word yeah. for what he is. He, he's not particularly concerned. He's, he's pedal to the metal, trying to just get those words down on paper, writing violently, quickly, splashing ideas, images, metaphors on the page. And some of it works and some of it doesn't. Yeah. A lot, he's got a pretty great batting average because he just happens to be awesome. And actually, I would say that J.K. Rowling falls more into that camp, too. And the difference, if I had to say there's a difference between them and someone like Ernest Cline or, say... R.L. Stein or... R.L. Stein or um, Tom Clancy, those guys, would be that that camp, they're being lazy because all they want to do is tell this entertaining story. And that's simply all there is to it. There's no sense of the craft of writing in the sense that they're a part of a literary tradition, that they are wanting to be writers, that they're a part of this thing that is literature. Right, J.K. Rowling, she wanted to be a part of this thing that is literature. For all her faults, so did Madeline Lingle, <laughs> and she really failed. But And that's why, you know, I think we, I ended up hating her so much, but it's because she was trying to be that and failed as badly as she did. And it's not like that it's lofty and high and all that, but it's like if somebody comes and they say they're in the uh, art of building buildings, you don't want them to build a shack. You don't want them to just go and put together some sticks and say, here, this will keep you warm and dry. Right? You want them to build a building, and it'd be nice if it had some nice amenities to it, looked like a nice house, you know? If they had some skill, your walls weren't falling down, they knew where to put the plaster, <laughs> they knew where to put your toilet, and how to put all the plumbing in. And so you would want someone to be able to make a functional house, but we always like it as well if it can make it a nice-looking house, too. Sure. If it's a building that's, uh, you know, easy on the eyes. And that's where the style comes in. It goes beyond just the structure of the building. It makes it easy on the eyes. It gives it life. Well, that's another question you can ask of any work is, uh, maybe this will sound a little bit vague, but does it have life? Perhaps another way to think of it is, do I see clear images as I read this? Is the author communicating what's going on in a way that is vivid and it's colorful and it's alive? And it's not just there to make the story go down easy. Right. But it's rather so that I can see this thing happen. I couldn't tell you what a single character looks like. I, I don't have, in, in Ready Player One, I, I don't have a sense of what the world was like. I mean, I know from the movie more than anything else that there's some trailers stacked on top of each other and maybe it's kind of dusty, but you don't really get a sense of having lived in that world. Even the guy's apartment that he's in for a good chunk of the novel, I guess it's sparse. That's what we know about it, but we don't know much else. And it's not that you know, uh, there's a bad kind of Victorian writing or maybe even pre-Victorian where, where they just, it's just pages and pages of the color of the walls and the plaster and the flowers. No, it's that detail. It's the one detail 
that tells. It's the one yeah. detail that stands in for the rest that lets you know. Well, one line. of my introductions to one of Tolstoy's books, I can't remember which one it is. It was this professor pointing out the fact that Tolstoy was really gifted at grouping threes. When he was introducing something, he would like give you three little details. And it'd be like, you know, three splashes of color that you needed. And then that would just bring life to it and he would move on. But yeah, but again... You have to train yourself to know the difference between when someone's doing that versus when they're just using cliches. And it can be difficult. And sometimes it's really easy to fall for cliches because they become cliches for a reason. There's not always anything wrong with it. No, I mean, what else? Are, I said a winding road earlier. Yeah. Well, what else are you supposed to call a winding road but a winding road? I don't know. Yeah. So sometimes you can. T- sometimes authors become really silly because they're trying to avoid cliches. Mm-hmm. And so you can go in the opposite extreme too. The problem is when that's all you do is cliches. Because again, it's laziness. And often it gets your point across just as well to say he grinned while pocketing his coin, right? There's more life to that. You see the character more than that other sentence. Yeah. Well, and the author, I mean, maybe I guess this is just the the laziness versus diligence podcast because that's what we keep circling back to. But the real abstract one, he showed satisfaction as he took possession of his well-earned reward. That could mean any number of things. But then when you begin to think concretely about it, you have to make choices. He grinned as he pocketed the coin is different than he smiled as he put the check in his wallet, as he folded the check neatly and put it in his wallet. You know, you're making choices about who this guy is. That takes work. That takes energy. That takes diligence, again. So part of the reason that people should be disciplined to use concrete language and that we should expect it is because it requires requires the author to simply make choices, and those choices lend life and vividness and color to the story they're telling or the thing they're trying to communicate. Yeah. I do think that this is part of the reason that I am always circling around the author. It's because, and it's interesting, when you read something like Ernest Cline, even though I was angry at Ernest Cline, I completely forget Ernest Cline when reading his book. That's because I don't feel like there's anyone really invested in telling me something that's worth me hearing. I just get the sense that he's there to tickle my ears, right? He thinks that I want my ears tickled. And so he's giving me cliches, he's giving me an easy story, he's just entertaining me, and that's not always wrong. I think it's fine, I think I was right in calling it cotton candy, right? But it's not what you're getting with the other thing. And that is, you're getting serious art. We do idolize art too much. I mean, we make an idol out of it, so that it's going to answer all of our questions. But God has given to us creativity. He's given to us story. And this is something that's given pleasure to us for long times. It's a good gift when used and put in its proper place. And he's given us the gift of poetry and all these things which we can see the world and then put what we see and experience into language. You can experience someone else's thoughts about nature and about uh, everybody likes Robert Frost. So you get the his poem about um, stopping in the woods on a snowy evening, right? You read that poem, you get the sense of what it is to be this lonely writer in the woods. Is there anything of value beyond just feeling what it is to be in the woods with this guy? Probably not, but is there anything wrong with it? Nope. <laughs> no. No. So what's the value there? Uh, I guess that's a big question. That's probably for another podcast. That may be another podcast. I, I mean, mean, I do think that the book ending eventually. So this has been in the back of my mind because your other podcast kind of fired shots across our bow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not intentionally, man. Not intentionally. So on our other podcast, if people don't listen, first of all, they they should because it's, it's amazing. But we, we always have a segment called The Devil's Advocacy, where somebody comes out and argues for 
the opposite of what we actually believe. And so somebody was arguing, Jacob Menzel, Pastor Jacob Menzel, our absent friend, our absent comrade, was arguing in that podcast that that literature is bad, that novels are bad, that that movies are bad. That novels kind of create the corruption. Yes, 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 yes. Ever since Don Quixote, we've seen nothing but the society going downhill. Yep. That's all the novel's fault. Um, And he did a much more credible job of arguing it than I just did. Uh, Yeah, he did a credible job, mm -hmm. which was what was worrisome. Yes. (laughs) But then you see this, like, so when we talked about E.B. White, people were very worried about allowing fiction into libraries because they thought fiction corrupted. And this was often the way people saw fiction. And so back in, uh, when we read um, Mansfield Park, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, man, when we read Mansfield Park, for some reason I was thinking Northanger Abbey. No, 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 yeah, Mansfield Park. (laughs) With the play, Mm -hmm. right? People really thought that these things affected you and could could negatively affect you, which we agree with. Sure they can. Yeah, sure they can. But yeah, I think that's going to have to be a question. But you and Jake have already answered that question. Well, I mean, I think the booketing as the booketing is the answer to the, the question. The booketing is Brandon. the answer. Yeah, that's and right. Every episode we're striving to answer that question in one form or another. But and we find and we're not uh, we're not afraid to say some books aren't worth it. Yeah. Which is fine. But there is something, I don't know, I'm just going to be fruity and, art, and artsy here. There's something absolutely beautiful about the fact that Robert Frost, since that's the example that we have before us, captured this weird, halfway eerie, halfway homey, halfway beautiful twilight feeling of, of being in the woods mm-hmm. on a winter night. That's a feeling that is common to humanity. And nobody had managed to just crystallize it and capture it. It's, it's like he's a huntsman and he, he brought down a, a rare bird or an animal and now it's on display and we can all study it and think about it. And it, it lends meaning to those times when we find ourselves driving through the woods or find ourselves standing in a, in a country setting with snow coming down. Suddenly, instead of having this vague, these vague abstract notions and feelings, we have an author who's done some work of, of, of crystallizing that into something. And that in itself has some kind of value, I think. Yeah, it gives you a way of seeing. Yeah. Is what Robert Pym Warren would say. Mm-hmm. And that's the value of poetry is it gives you a way of seeing the world. It's not your own. I've had people ask, you know, when we were talking about C.S. Lewis and experiment and criticism, what was the thing that I said? That he says that literature does... It takes you beyond yourself. You lose yourself in literature. That's mm-hmm. what he ends up arguing. And then obviously the question is, well, isn't that what escapism is? Isn't, aren't you just losing yourself in the escapism? Well, the answer to that would be, but it, but the best literature always thinks it has something to give you. Mm-hmm. That's why it can be dangerous too, because it does think it has something to give you, right? The best literature, you go and you read it, and then suddenly a tiny little part of your life has snapped into focus. And so it's like you're, you're you know, when I was a kid, I, I, I didn't realize I needed glasses, but I always did. And, and, and then I got to be about eight or nine, and I went to the doctor, and they had me read that chart, and I couldn't do it. Didn't know what the letters were, and they got me glasses. And I'm sure anyone that wears glasses or contacts has had this experience of putting them on for the first time in their life and realizing, oh, there's a world out there, and now suddenly I can see it. Good literature nourishes us that way. Something as simple, another example would, I'll just think of the most obvious example in the world, Hamlet, to be or not to be, the, the famous speech. Well, we've all, we all have these vague notions and thoughts about, is it better to be alive? Is it better to be dead? Is, you know, fear of death, fear of the unknown, f- misery with our current circumstances? We all think about those things. To have a great poet and a great man just snap it all into focus like that, give us a way of seeing it, give us a hook to hang that thought on, is nothing but helpful. It's 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 it's, it's just helpful. It's a way of seeing. It's a way of seeing. Yeah. And there's the problem that people run into is that 
we have idolized that. Yes. And we've turned that way of seeing into like, like that's the thing that's going to save us. And instead of putting it in its place and seeing it as a good, kind gift from God, then he gives us these things that can help us enjoy the world. And so, yeah, so Frost has helped, has given you a way of thinking about woods in a snowy evening. And it really is as simple as that. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. That is what is beautiful about it. In its own place, it's what's beautiful about it. Well, and it's part of how God communicates his truth to us. I mean, you think about the Psalms. I mean, you think about something as simple as Psalm Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Snap. Yeah. Uh, I, I suddenly have a clarity of vision about who God is because of metaphor, because the, a great poet, <laughs> King David, a divinely inspired poet in this case, has, has found a little image to crystallize something about the way that God cares for me. That's right. So it's intrinsic to life. I mean, it's inescapable. You can't, you can't, even if you're doing it badly and idolizing it, I'm not sure it's the kind of thing that you can repent out of, you know? No, it's, it's what you lose when you are trying to only have escapism because it doesn't force you to snap into focus on the world. All it, all escapism does, and that's the ultimate issue with escapism that's only about escapism, is because all it is is about you. Yeah. It's about you wanting to be entertained. The best literature is never really about that. It, the best literature is always about giving you a new way of seeing. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, I think that's true. So that is the ultimate answer to someone who makes that objection. And so... Are you trying to say that literature shouldn't be... Inter- no, of course it's supposed to be entertaining. It's, but it's supposed part to of the way that it helps you see is by enticing you, drawing you in, pulling you along making you want to read it. If it's not, it's like C.S. Lewis said, we've quoted it a thousand times. If it's not as a, on, a, on a base level entertaining you, then it's not doing your job, its job. Yep. But it should be doing something more. Yeah, which is what we've been saying. And so that's ultimately where then the style ends up mattering so much is because in the style, and you can see an author struggling with how to make these expressions be as sharp as they are. And then that's also where it matters because the authors end up making choices in line with the way that they see the world, right? And Ernest Klein sees the world in a very fuzzy way. Self-centered way. Self-centered way. He's a narcissist, and you see that. He doesn't really care what anyone looks like in his story, what anyone behaves like. He cares that Artemis is cute. And so that's the detail that we get. Thanks, dude. And for as good as he was with detail like this, Joyce ended up getting corrupted by just being, what, boring? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not much life to it. I don't know what. I don't know what. Where he went wrong. That's all. He's a difficult one. I love, I just want to say one thing about Joyce though, because we often use him as a punching bag. The Dead is an absolutely incredible story. I don't know if we gave full weight to that in our podcast, but Joyce was capable of greatness and he did actually achieve it at least one time in his life. And everyone should read the story of the dead. Actually, as a picture of what we've been talking about today, I think it has everything there. Restraint. Um, So if I had to summarize what would go into, if someone was trying to find good style, yeah, it has restraint. It has simple music to the lines in the sense that it's not going for big. Probably a good example of the big, rambunctious someone who does it but kind of does it well would be Bradbury and Something Wicked This Way Comes. But not every author can pull it off, and most authors can't. And Bradbury actually fails in sometimes trying to do it. So just the simple beauty of having the image perfectly placed at the right time, otherwise just using spare language that's just very straightforward, but also organized in such a way as to have an inner rhythm to it and beauty. So you can analyze how these sorts of things work. Like I said, you can go and you can learn the rules of rhetoric. You can go and you can learn learn the rules of poetry. 
but really it's just a matter of reading and reading and reading all these good lines and eventually you'll begin to see it you'll begin to hear and it's not like the sing-songy type of lines but it's just i don't know there's an elegance to it yeah it's like you can you can learn you can spend your life studying the rules of grammar but the best way to learn a language is to speak it and to hear it spoken and uh, you know eventually it becomes second nature so there's a restraint but then there's also a music to it and then there's also this sort of clarity of when they do use these images the words are all serving it's their purpose i think that's one of the things we haven't said yet but the best stylists are people who really know how to put every word to use mm-hmm. and that's uh, one of the most that's one of the most beneficial things i had from strunk and white was always that every word matters omit needless words yep. is their famous dictum which doesn't mean that you only have like two or three word sentences no it means that if you're going to have a word make sure that word has a purpose in the line yeah well it's interesting to read white's essays with that rule in mind because you'll see that he actually does use adjectives he does use adverbs quite often he's not yeah. always he's not as spare as like a hemingway or somebody some of these modernists are uh, white can actually be indulgent with things like that but it's not indulgent in a bad way. He just knows which words aren't needless. And so yeah. he, he he finds these choice little nuggets and he uses them well. Yeah. And sometimes it'll just be, like I said, because of the rhythm of the line. So he has this one here, um, like the question of ear is vital. Only the writer whose ear is reliable is in a position to use bad grammar deliberately. Only he knows for sure when a colloquialism is better than formal phrasing. Only he is able to sustain. So the second only there isn't really necessary, but it's kind of adding to the music, right? yeah. the rhythm. Then he asks, so cock your ear. Years ago, students were warned not to end a sentence with a preposition. Time, of course, has softened that rigid decree. The of course even there. It's not really necessary, but the break in the line is It adds nice. a break. It adds a little breath. Um, but again, it's like it's this internal. He had, a stu- he had a voice he was going for. So that's probably one thing we haven't mentioned. We should mention quickly in just a minute. Sure. But also this, just trying to get I realize with when I'm talking about the music of the line, I'm being pretty abstract. So I just wanted to give an example yeah. of someone who does it. And so the music will often add things that you don't think are necessary, but they are necessary because it makes it read better. And then finally, whenever you're trying to teach a student voice is really hard, but it's the feeling that you get when you're reading something that you're actually reading someone talking to you, mm. right? And so when you read E.B. White, you actually get a sense that E.B. White's talking to you. Mm-hmm. You get a sense that E.B. White is a consistent person in these pages that's, right? And so that's, it's so a style goes a long way also to creating this voice. Like you were saying, is it going to be chatty? Is it going to be cold and academic? Is it going to be grand and biblical, kind of like Cormac McCarthy? Mm-hmm. So, well, you so see violations off. of this, and maybe it's easier to talk about it negatively. You see violations of this, for example, Stephen King is someone I think of who violates this a lot, and it's to his detriment, I think. There are things I like about Stephen King, but one of the problems with Stephen King is that he is self-indulgent when it comes to voice. So, for example, he'll write a short story or an essay or something, and it will be folksy, very middle America, all of which is fine, but then suddenly he'll have this real vulgar passage. He'll have a really explicit description of sexuality or something like that. It's not that it's always bad to use those kinds of things in the proper context, but it'll feel out of place. It'll just simply feel out of place, and it'll make you stop reading and question, was this character or this voice, was was this person of, I don't know. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So the voice matters. Voice matters. But voice matters mainly because a consistent voice matters. You don't want to be talking to a schizophrenic unless that's the point of the book. Right. 
And um, the TV show, The Voice, is quite popular. I understand. Yeah. I think it's got Simon Cowell. He, he's got a voice. He's got a voice. A he, very British voice. He tells people they suck. Yeah. Anything else we want to say about style before we end this episode in stylish fashion, Brandon? No. One I thing I'm realizing we forgot to do, we should do it real quick, is say hello to our patrons. Oh, hey, patrons. Hey, patrons. Here, I'll tell you the patrons, and then you can... You can call them out in whatever method you so choose, in the most stylish method that you possibly can. Oh, boy. Lily of the Valley. Hey, Lily of the Valley. <laughs> Very stylish right there. Thank you. Andrew and Esther and the little bundle of joy that they brought into the world not too long ago. Oh, yeah. Andrew and Esther and that little bundle of joy. And uh, the inscrutable Jenny Z, a bundle of joy in her own right. Inscrutable Jenny Z. Robert and Rhonda brought a little bundle of joy called Brandon into the world one, yeah. one, once upon a time. Robert and Rhonda. John and Jill and little baby Max, also a bundle of more or less joy at this point. John and Jill and that little bundle of more or less joy, Max. This is an interesting one, Brandon. We've got a company <laughs> that's supporting us now. Really? So I guess they just want a free shout out for their company. Well, it's not free. They're They're supporting us, but... I suppose we, they just want the name of the company because I don't have the name of the individual. Okay. Uh, David's Mighty Men Transport. David's Mighty Men Transport. For all your transport needs here in uh, beautiful Bloomington, Indiana, hey, if I'm not mistaken. David's Mighty Men. <laughs> We've got my beloved mother, Beth. Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. We should welcome David's Mighty Men Transport, by hey, the way. David's Mighty Men Transport. <laughs> Thank you, David's Mighty Men Transport. For all your transportation needs. Yeah. If you guys would actually like us to call you by your names, let us know. Yeah, but as far as uh, the way you signed up, you I think you just want Because we know these two people. They're very dear to us. And you just want your, your ad. I think they just want an ad for their company, David's hey, Mighty we'll Men Transport. So. so we got to do an, uh, an impromptu ad for them? Yeah, yeah. So you're, uh, you're at home and... I think we got to tie it. You know, Brandon, I find great literature to be very transporting. Whoa, Nathan. So do I. You know what else is transporting? What's that, Brandon? The trucks at David's Mighty Men. They can transport whatever you need from wherever you need to wherever you are. Now, it sounds like what you're saying, Brandon, is that for all my transportation needs, I should use David's Mighty Men Transport. Yeah. Every single transportation need you have. Except Even, for, for the need to be transported by great literature, I should oh, listen yeah, to the book. Oh, yeah, except for that, you should listen to the book and, and read great Unless books. you happen to be reading it on a David's Mighty Men truck. That's true. And then you'll be transported twice. That's <laughs> double <laughs> transportation. That's exactly right, man. David's Mighty Men, for all your transportation needs. That aren't metaphorical. That aren't metaphorical. <laughs> Let's see, we've got uh, my beloved mother, Beth. Nathan's beloved mother, Beth. Maya! Maya! Katie, no, yeah, Jay and Katie who are cold and love cheese. Jay and Katie, they are cold and love cheese. I wonder if they have kids. They probably have kids. You have kids, Jay and Katie? I don't know. Do you like transportation? Do you like transportation? They obviously like the metaphorical transportation. That's why they listen to this show. Yeah. Benny Tiberius and his beloved, beautiful wife, Dana. Benny Tiberius and his beautiful wife, Dana. Beautiful wife, Dana. Nathan, not me. Nathan, not Nathan. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. Eric and Catherine, the lovebirds. And of course, where would we be without Professor X? Where would we be without you, Professor X? We'd be less rich than we are. That's true. Less, less thank you, supported. Professor X. Yeah, thank you, Professor X. We love you. And Mrs. X. 
All right. Well, thanks for listening, folks. You know, you know what? Um, this, we're doing the show weird today. I'm not even going to play the credit music. Well, here, the music will start right now, but I'm just going to keep talking. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode on style. Jake will be back next week for more Charlotte's Web, and uh, that should be good. Looking forward to that. Put our knowledge of style to use as we talk about one of the most simple yet stylish books around, Charlotte's Web. Charlotte, in fact, herself, a great writer. She was. And, and a, a good, good friend. friend. Yeah. Jinx. We want to thank Brandon, as always, for joining us. We want to thank Nathan for joining us. We want to thank you for listening. We want to encourage you to leave a five-star review on iTunes if you enjoy this show and want to support it. If you want to be among the likes of the of David's Mighty Men Transport or, or Maya or professor x or any of the our, our beautiful uh, patrons then you can give us some money go to the patreon.com forward slash the booking that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n we're on all the social medias and uh, stuff so uh, enjoy oh, yeah. and uh brandon i'm i'll bid you a stylish adieu. adieu you know what i'm wondering next what, week what's that <clears throat> charlotte had three things she wrote in her web right i wonder if we could decide which of us would be some pig which of us would be radiant <laughs> and which of us would be humble? <laughs> well, we know who's humble. Oh, that's I say the it each and every yeah. other week. That's right. Each and every week. Uh-oh. Uh, so one of you, <laughs> Jake, Jake and you are got to split up Radiant and some pig. Oh, boy. <laughs> that's a good cliffhanger. We'll find out n- next week whether Brandon is, in fact, Radiant or some pig. Uh-oh. <laughs>